Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Joanne. And I'm Kim. And today we have an episode that we feel that all women need to hear. Believe it or not, it's time that we normalize what age women decide to have children. So just to let you guys know, a few months ago, I changed gynecologists and I started seeing one who was an expert in fibroid care and management because if you have fibroids, if you have periods, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Even though this particular gynecologist was on top of his game and he gave me a plan to manage my fibroids and prevent all that pain, He decided to enlighten me in a very professional way that my biological clock was running out of time. So of course, this got me scared because I do want children one day, but now all of a sudden I feel the societal pressures to conform. Oh my gosh. And that's, your story is not um, uncommon. It's so crazy to be the pressure in the titles that are put upon us as women. I had two babies after 35 and I was categorized as being a geriatric pregnancy. And this made me feel so old and it questioned whether I should be having kids at that age um, just because of that title that they put on me. And not to mention the added stress of me thinking, oh Lord, like this is about to go all wrong for me because I'm having kids after 35. So scientifically, I believe a biological clock does exist, but is there really an age where women should not be having children? Right. And what does even like a geriatric pregnancy mean? Like why, why did that terminology even originate in the first place? So for this reason and a lot of other reasons, we invited Dr. Shannon Clark, who is a double board certified obstetrician and gynecologist and maternal fetal medicine specialist here to speak with us. She focuses on the care of women with maternal and or fetal complications during pregnancy. So during Dr. Shannon's first year of residency, she realized that she had a passion for taking care of women with complicated or high-risk pregnancies, and she subsequently decided to pursue a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine and a master's in medical science at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. And Dr. Clark has taken a special interest in pregnancy after the age of 35, which according to age alone is considered a high-risk pregnancy. She was inspired not only by the experiences of friends and patients, but also by her own personal experience of trying to start a family at the age of 40. In her role as a physician caring for high-risk pregnancies, she has counseled and treated hundreds of women over the years and has found a whole new respect for the challenges and complications a woman may experience when trying to have a baby later in life. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shannon. We're so happy to have you here with us. So let's just jump right into it so that our audience can get to know you a little more. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, uh, where you're located, and a fun fact. Okay, so I am a professor in maternal fetal medicine. So I did my four years of OBGYN training, followed by additional three years for maternal fetal medicine. And I uh, do practice at an academic institution in Galveston, Texas. Um, So I teach residents, fellows, uh, med students. What I do is a little bit different than a lot of maternal fetal medicine specialists or high-risk obstetricians is also what we're called. uh, And that we uh, cover labor delivery 24-7 because most of our patients are high-risk. So I still do deliveries and surgeries and all of that, as well as the ultrasounds and seeing patients in consultation. 
So that's what my my day-to-day job is. Um, I will add that, you know, I, um, because of my training, which took forever, I did not meet my husband until age 38. We married at 39 um, and then uh, wanted to immediately start trying to have a family. Um, I very quickly had a miscarriage right off the bat, turned 40 shortly thereafter, and then kind of freaked out a little bit. So we decided Mm -hmm. to go to um, a fertility specialist, which led to five cycles of IVF. Um, Because of my age, I had poor egg quality and quantity. Um, and I was only able to get one normal embryo out of those five cycles that did not work. So we ended up going to egg donor. So by the mm-hmm. just shy of 43, about nine days shy of my 43rd birthday, I gave birth to my twins who I conceived through an egg donor. And uh, they were 31 weeks when I delivered. And um, you're now almost four. Oh, that is so wonderful. Almost 46 year, almost 47 year old mom to four year old twins. Hey, that's okay. <laughs> that is yeah. okay. And your kids are gorgeous. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. They they definitely had their dad's smile. That's for sure. Um, but, uh, and probably a little bit of my personality, for sure. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so that kind of ties into my career as well. I mean, I, I, I consider myself a very empathetic and uh, very conscientious provider. Uh, just based on how I grew up and where I came from in general. And I will say most of my patients, about 80 plus percent are indigent. And so I, mm-hmm. you know, really identify my patient population, but going through a high risk pregnancy myself um, and mm-hmm. fertility challenges, um, I really got a whole new appreciation of what some of my patients go through. So I really think that helped as well. Yeah. Wow. You know, your story is something that I've heard before and you know, the miscarriages, I've gone through miscarriage and in the black community, it's not something that people talk about a lot. And we're going to go a little bit into that. I feel like because hearing it from a professional and even hearing it at all, I found like with my friends, they felt a little bit better. Like they were not abnormal. Like it's, it wasn't something that they did that caused them their body to react the way it did when they were having issues conceiving. So I, I think we're going to talk about that just a little bit um, later. But before we even go into that, I just want to get some definitions out the way um, and some differentiations. Can you go into the differences between maternal health equity and health equity or health equality for us? Yeah, so I I use like an example uh, with my residents uh, when talking to them about it, and I actually over the past week have kind of quizzed them, and I, I and I to ask them to see if they knew, and what I you know unfortunately uh, a lot of them most of them did not, so it was a teaching opportunity. But the best example I could give and is this: if you have ten women who show up on labor and delivery for I'll just use induction of labor, right? they're coming in for induction of labor. And I say, okay, well, I have $100,000 to take care of these women. So I'm going to give each one of them $10,000. So they each are equal. I'm not, you know, uh, saying this person gets more money. They all get the same. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Healthy quality, right? You're getting all access to $10,000. However, that's when you start to think about or need to think about health equity. This mm-hmm. one woman may be at a disadvantage and some women will enter this period uh, or this time not on equal footing for whatever reason their socioeconomic status, the fact that they have pre-existing medical conditions that made their compli- their pregnancy complicated, or there's something that's abnormal with the baby. So in that situation, that's when health equity becomes important because you want to allocate whatever resources I have to the ones who need it the most. 
So the first six women may not need the $10,000. So I have to be willing to and recognize that the ones that need more resources are going to get that because not every woman needs the same amount of resources. So if I just said, well, you know what? Room nine, yes, she has is uh, has a complicated pregnancy, but I only have $10,000 $10, and she maxed out. So, you know, that's all I can do. That's not the way we should do it. We also have to consider right. health equity and make sure we distribute those resources to the women who need them. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it really does. It really does. I love the fact that, you know, you mentioned allocating resources to individuals that really need them. So I think with that, you know, I want to I want to switch gears a bit and speak about racism. So what impact do you think racism has on health disparities and pregnancy outcomes for women of color? Well, you know, there's a lot of a lot of information out there, actually, which is great. There's a, there's a lot more being written about it in the medical community for educational purposes. But I, what I'm going to refer to is a document that, I, that the National Birth Equity Collaborative and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine came out with. SMFM is our kind of our governing body for maternal fetal medicine. And I'm just going to quote some stats here that I think kind of summarize what's going on because it's, it's right there and it's been proven. The first one's going to be, and I, this was also uh, brought in to light by an OBGYN on, uh, actually on a TikTok video, but I think it kind of surprised what people is that healthcare providers are less likely to, to respond to the concerns of black women, namely uh, being in pain, uh, that they don't uh, respond to their pain needs like they would mm-hmm. someone else. Mm-hmm. And that has been documented and shown in studies that is, that is true. Uh, the second right. thing be that, and we've heard this a lot, that black women are more likely to die. Um, the, the stats that came out recently were uh, between 2011 and 2015 that black women had the highest pregnancy-related mortality death or mortality mm-hmm. ratio at 42.8 per 1,000 live births. Um, that is in uh, in comparison to 13 uh, per 100,000 live births in non-Hispanic white women. The next population that's the most affected would be American Indian and Alaska Native, with they're at 32.5 per 100,000 live births. Um, there's also the stats that consider black infants are more likely to die before their first birthday. And then black infants are more likely to be born early and be of lower birth weight. So, you know, those are the most, to me, are the most prominent stats that when you consider uh, pregnancy-related outcomes. And um, it's alarming. And it, it, it's, it's there right in front of our eyes. And uh, it, we really need to do something about it. So I, I do applaud the medical community for doing this research and getting this data. So now is time to do something about it. Wow. I mean, it's, it's crazy because, and, and I think it's because of social media that we're hearing more and more about this and more stories, but I feel like this year, and also maybe because we're all at home on social media all the time. I feel like this year I've heard so many more stories of women going to the hospital and passing away after giving birth or during the giving birth process and the labor and delivery process. And it's it's been so disheartening for me to, to hear these stories because I have four kids of my own and it could be anyone. And you just think about how close you could have been to it being you. And so my question for you is, is there a way that providers can, um, I don't know, confront their own racism if, if that's what's going on with them? Or is there a way for them to be able to, um, I guess, uh, 
act against their personal bias or find ways to make the situation a better, uh, have a better outcome? So that's a lot of questions and a lot of different, very good points. But I'm going to try to summarize all that and kind of how I have, I haven't figured it out in my own mind, but how I think about it in in my own way. I I think it starts with, and I'm only going to speak on behalf of physicians. I'm not a nurse. I'm a physician. I'm not a a, a healthcare provider, but as a physician, we go through a lot of training. Uh, Being a physician is a very highly regarded profession, a certain amount Mm -hmm. of prestige associated with it. And I think that what physicians physicians first have to do is understand that number one, it's happening. Right. To accept that it's happening. Mm-hmm. And number two, we have to un- understand what our role is and understand that as an individual, we might each be playing a role in this. And if so, how is it? How, how is it happening? But more importantly, just because we're educated and we're physicians doesn't mean we're above it. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that we're not um, susceptible or we don't have our own biases. Now, you think about implicit bias, which is the unconscious uh, bias versus explicit, which is the more conscious bias. You know, uh, I think it's pretty evident that there is explicit bias and, and you don't want to hear about it in healthcare. But I know it happens. I think we all know that and we've all heard it or seen it. As far mm-hmm. as the implicit bias, I'm sure that, you know, we there are providers that may not even realize that. You know, and they feel like that's not the case, but they could be having a bias that's either having an unfavorable outcome on a patient of a different ethnicity or a more favorable outcome against a patient who looks like them. Sorry, a more favorable outcome for a patient that looks like them. So we have to stop and evaluate first as an individual, what is, could be my role in this? And then as a group, and then further as an institution as to Mm -hmm. what roles that at all those level levels are being played into this. I, I think it's been pretty proven that racism does impact pregnancy outcomes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And until, you know, the, I, I say, you know, the institution can say, we're going to do anti-racism training. We're going to do provide all these resources for our providers, but until the provider takes it seriously and really wants to learn from it, nothing's really going to change. Nice. You know, when you were Mm -hmm. speaking, Dr. Shannon, earlier, you mentioned that, you know, there was another uh, colleague of yours that had a TikTok. And I actually saw what you were referring to because you posted it on your Instagram page. And she was saying that there was a survey done, I think it was 2016, if I recall correctly. Uh, Yeah, I I don't remember exactly, but fairly recently. Yeah, recently. And it was saying that 50% of physicians thought that, you know, black people just felt pain differently. Than their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my question is, you know, listening to what you're saying that, yeah, you know, you as a doctor, you go through a lot of training and other professionals that are physicians go through a lot of trainings and specialties as well. So when do you think is the right time to start these conversations? Do you think it is before med school, during med school, residency? Um, because I feel that, you know, every step of the process um, these things should be addressed and, you know, it shouldn't be just because it's a, um, you know, it's a hot topic now. It's something that's been going on for a very long period of time. And I remember you also posting, you know, when you actually went into birth with your children, that your husband was afraid. Your husband is a man of color. Your husband was afraid because he was going over the speed limit. 
And I'm just thinking like, well, when, when do we address these things as health professionals? It was very hard to hear him say that because all he was trying to do was get his wife and his kids to safety. So I can't imagine, and look, I'm a physician. I got the best care. I got delivered on the same labor delivery unit where I worked. I spent two months on hospital bed rest with the nurses that I work with every day taking care of me. I never once had to worry that someone wasn't going to do the best thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I really hate that women have to worry about that. I, I tell my residents, you know, the job we have as obstetricians to take care of our mothers and babies affects the rest of their life. And if they're not getting what they need at that point in time, that can affect the rest of their life or it could end it. So we, and, and if there's anything we can do to prevent that, whether it's confronting our own issues we might have with racism it, that we may not even realize that's, that's there, then we need to start doing it because it's very important. Mm-hmm. These are moms and babies where they're starting off on the best foot. And I tell them, all I want to do at the end of the day is make sure every baby's born with the best, under the best possible, possible circumstances, because I don't know what's going to happen for the next 18 years of their life until they're in adulthood. And, you know, uh, I'm sorry, I got emotional, but you know, it's, it's, it's tough. And I, and I would, and I, I never had to worry about my care. And I, it, it's really disheartening to me to know that women do and that women aren't being heard, women of color, and that they're losing their yeah. life, they're losing their children. So yes, something definitely needs to be done. When do we need to start educating our future physicians? It's never too early. You know, we go through pre-med courses, then we go to medical school. But I'm going to tell you, I never got trained on health disparities. I never got trained on any of that. Okay. We don't have courses in that. No one ever Mm -hmm. sat down and told, you know, had a course to, to, to train me on you know, or even test about it, you know, uh, how to uh, confront it, how to deal with it. If you see it in someone else, if you are seeing it in your work environment, how do you confront that? How do you make a change? How do you prevent it with yourself? And those things have to be taught so that that it can be recognized, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you see it, how do you do it? How do you handle it? Or how do you make it better? So all this, it's never too early to start. I, I, I wish it could start in the pre-med, but it shouldn't end. It's not like you take one course and you're one and done and that's good enough. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's something that you learn through and it evolves over the course of your career as you're putting to, as you're putting different situations. I will share a story with you guys and I hope I'm not digressing too much. And I've only shared no. this a couple of times, but you know, I, uh, I grew up a uh, very, uh, 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 very poor for lack of a better word. I, I was the first person, my sister and I to graduate high school and the only ones to go to college. And I was, I'm the only physician in my family. So I, you know, I, I knew what it was like to be in from a lower socioeconomic status in that regard. But, and I guess I was bright eyed and bushy tailed going into medicine. But I remember clearly when I was a resident, I got called to the emergency room on a patient, you know, they call you and say, Hey, it's the middle of the night, eat ER, this patient here, she's got a positive pregnancy test. She's about six weeks pregnant and oh, and her hemoglobin or her blood count is four. I was so busy. I was just like, okay, okay, okay. okay." Mm -hmm. And I was busy with other, you know, I was a resident and all of a sudden clicked it. Her hemoglobin is four. Mm. I take off down the ER, running, Mm -hmm. running, running. I pass doctors in the hallway. I pass health care providers. I, I don't know what all they are sitting at the desk. And I asked, where's this patient? And they said, room, whatever. And they point. 
I walk into the room and she's in the room on a stretcher by herself. By herself. She's a woman of color. She was laying there. Her blood, I look at her blood pressure. Her blood pressure is low. I look at her belly and I knew she was bleeding internally. But she was by herself. Hmm. And I literally pulled the stretcher out of the room myself. And I'm raising and screaming. People are looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, this woman is going, she's got to get to the OR. We've got to, she's not going to make it. Mm-hmm. And it took that for the bells or the alarms to be raised. Mm-hmm. And that's when I knew, that's when I, I think I, it really clicked with me. And I want you to know that I, I, surgery was difficult. She made it. She got a lot of blood transfusion. And that woman, beautiful woman, sent me flowers every day for multiple years after that on the anniversary of her okay and this is a true story so it needs to be taught and we need to be educated man i'm telling you i'm, I'm trying to hold back tears right now because i'm remember you know you're you were emotional so it's bringing out like some of the experiences that i've had and things that i've seen i've been blessed enough like i myself growing up in the united states you know my background is not lavish at all but I was blessed to have two parents in the home and we didn't want for anything, which was awesome. So growing up, um, getting married and having kids, I was blessed enough that I was able to find medical providers that were awesome. And I always tell people this, and we're always talking about it here on the podcast is to interview your medical professionals, like you're interviewing for, I don't know, whatever is significantly important in your life. So I did that when I was first, um, my husband and I were first interested in having kids and we've stuck with the same practice for all of our kids. And I will say initially there was like one male OB in the practice and he wasn't too much what I wanted, but everyone else was awesome. And he since left and I stayed with the practice and I've been blessed that I haven't had issues where anybody's trying to force me into having a C-section or making me feel like um, what I'm telling you that I'm experiencing is not valid. And, you know, the story you just gave of um, the person that you saw in the hospital alone, I I can't tell you, it's been a few times that I've had, my mom is always there, my husband's always there, I have friends visiting me in the hospital, and I'll have someone who's next door to me or somewhere down the hallway who has no one. And that always breaks my heart, because that means they don't have an advocate. They don't have somebody there. Something was to happen to, to, to speak on, on their behalf. And that's always like, I always feel so blessed to be able to have my advocates there for me, you know? So I want to ask you a question in regards to C-sections because there is a documentary that came out a few years ago. Um, I can't even remember the name. And basically the documentary, they were talking about how OBs are surgeons and all they want to do is have C-sections. And they just want to cut you open. Like I said, I I was blessed to not be able to have to have that. Although I've had one C-section and the rest were V-backs, it was not forced upon me. So my question for you is, is there different criterias that must be presented before you say, okay, we are doing a C-section on this person? Yeah, so... You know, I, I can, again, I can only speak for myself. You know, the United States, yes, in general, is considered to have a high cesarean section rate. Um, I think the reason why it has to be considered, I will say that most of what, what I do are repeat cesarean deliveries on women who have C-sections elsewhere. 
you know, there is something to be said for pre the prevention of the primary section. And I do fully believe in that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's not the case in other areas or with other providers. And they may be more quick to have a, or, you know, to do a cesarean section on a woman. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that it's okay to ask questions if that's the mm -hmm. case. And why do you recommend this? You know, I, again, I think, um, one thing I do see is I, 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 I don't think sometimes patients ask enough questions and maybe mm -hmm. that's because they put a, a lot of trust into a physician because that's the badge we wear and we're supposed to be mm -hmm. doing the best thing for our patients. And I hope, hopefully that is the case, but if there, you could still ask questions too. Right. And, and ask why it's happening. I hear all the time that women feel like they were forced into a C-section and I, and I hate that. I, I can't comment on it because I don't, I'm within their specific circumstances, right. but the fact that they felt that I don't want any woman to ever feel that, you know, but there are definitely indications for C-section. The top four being that they've had a previous uh, one somewhere else. Okay. Um, and again, we talked about VBAC. I think it's awesome that you got to VBAC and there are limitations to uh, who, who offers a trial of labor after cesarean. It's limited by whether or not the provider is okay with doing it and the, the institution or the hospital allows it because some hospitals do not allow it. In order mm -hmm. to have a trial of labor after cesarean section, you have to have anesthesia and the obstetrician in-house 24-7 be able to respond to emergencies. It's not, it's not something that you can have uh, a complication and you call the anesthesiologist in. That's not how it works. The hospital has to have them both in-house and not all, all, all hospitals do. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I where I work, we're here 24 seven. We do a lot of trial labors after cesarean, a lot that succeed and a lot that don't. Mm -hmm. um, so it all depends on, again, the provider uh, that can offer that trial of labor after cesarean and also the hospital that allows it. But for the main indications, again, like I said, is if we're having a prior cesarean section, you know, having a repeat, um, malpresentation or the baby's not head first, uh, most commonly being breech presentation, but the babies can also be in there. Other uh, ways like transverse or oblique, mm -hmm. um, a labor dystocia. That's where either the woman's not dilating like she should, or the baby's not coming down into the pelvis like it should. Um, that can mm -hmm. go anywhere from earlier in the pregnant, in the labor course, all the way to up to pushing. You know, there are times when a woman's pushing and just the baby's just not coming and we need to do a cesarean section. And then finally you hear about what we call fetal intolerance to labor or fetal distress. Fetal distress is kind of an older terminology. Um, but that's based on the fetal heart rate tracing. Uh, where we uh, determine that for the best maternal fetal outcome, a cesarean section is indicated. So, you know, I think, yes, I, I'm all for cesarean section when it's indicated. I had one because my, I was erupting with my twins. You know, it is a very uh, necessary procedure in a lot of situations. Um, but I'm also for what we call preventing the primary C-section, meaning trying our best to have a vaginal delivery to prevent that first C-section. Uh, and right. uh, I do support that. Um, so, you know, there, it's multifaceted, the whole thing around cesarean sections, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I do, women also need to know that part of the reason why we have a high cesarean section rate is because we're having more complicated pregnancies mm -hmm. or complex medical conditions in women who are older and delivering, you know, a woman of advanced, mm -hmm. age, what we consider, we'll talk about that later, of advanced age or geriatric pregnancy is at baseline at increased mm -hmm. cesarean section. So, you know, um, I would love to be able to say, no, doctors aren't out there just, you know, doing a C-section just because, but I, I can't say that. I can only speak for myself. So, um, you know, I do encourage women to start the conversation 
during the prenatal care. Ask the physician, like you said, ask questions, interview them. What is your philosophy around cesarean sections? What are the typical reasons why you would do a cesarean section? You know, right. how, how long would you let me go? Uh, you know, how, what do you induce? You know, those are all things that you can ask a, 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 your doctor and that can start throughout the course of your prenatal care. It doesn't have to be once you hit 37 or 38 weeks and then you bombard them with all these questions. You know, mm-hmm. doctors don't have time to address all those questions at that last prenatal visit. Start asking questions at every visit. That way, you, mm-hmm. that's also a good way to get to know your provider as well. I am feeling just so empowered right now, just listening to you, Dr. Shannon. So I know earlier you mentioned, you know, uh, age. So seeing that we're talking about babies, let's just talk about that right now. So what is like an ideal age to have children and what is considered to be quote unquote too old? I know too old. Uh, <laughs> so the best age, I don't know that there's a best age. Um, for some women, they prefer to, to start their families earlier on by choice or by not choice. Uh, and then some women like myself waited. And, you know, I think the one thing that women have to understand or uh, women not understand women should know is that times have changed. I think that women don't have to have families early. They don't have to be married or have a boyfriend or, or girlfriend or whatever early. They can do whatever mm-hmm. they want and do their career, travel, whatever. But you also have to understand the limitations with fertility. Um, ovarian aging is a real thing. And although it's different in every woman, uh, number one, it's not genetic. Just because your mom or your aunt or your sister had a baby later in life doesn't mean that you won't have a problem. Every individual is different. When that ovarian aging starts to kick in is different in every woman. Uh, ovarian aging includes a decrease in egg quality, meaning the DNA within each one of those eggs gets older uh, as you age. Um, and the egg quantity, the number of eggs that a woman has available to, you know, become a baby or fertilize or ovulate decreases with age. So what is the best age to have a baby is whenever a woman's ready. And Mm -hmm. what's the oldest age, you know, obviously the biological clock and going through menopause kind of shuts things off for women, like it or not. And again, menopause is also a thing that we don't have a whole lot of control over. But with the uh, advances in assisted reproductive technology, or which includes things like IVF, more and more older women are getting pregnant. Um, mostly, uh, especially as you get into your really late 40s and early 50s, um, through donor egg, and that is something that's not talked about a, a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the likelihood of women of that age are using their own eggs is pretty small. Um, but you know, generally, the rule of thumb is. In the United States, I think 55 is probably the cutoff for a IVF in most centers. Um, that may be changing. Uh, it all depends on their health status as well. So, you know, I think for women who are wanting to delay childbearing, as long as you know and are aware of the consequences and changes in your fertility as you age, you know, like you said, be empowered and be educated and know uh, what the potential mm-hmm. consequences could be. But medically speaking, advanced, advanced maternal edge, geriatric pregnancy, all of those lovely, sexy terms they use to describe us start at age mm-hmm. 35. And the reason why that occurred is because back in the day when we were, you know, amniocentesis was coming around where we did the amniocentesis, which is the invasive procedure to check for the chromosomal uh, chromosomes of the baby. It is an invasive test. It's the only way to know for sure um, uh, later in pregnancy whether or not a baby is chromosomally normal. 
the chances of having a, 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 an effect from the amniocentesis were roughly equal to that um, at age 35 with Down syndrome, of a woman having Down syndrome. So that's why 35 became the cutoff um, for be, being considered advanced maternal age. Um, so that just j basically means that, yes, your risk of having a baby with a chromosomal abnormality does start to increase at 35 based on ovarian aging. It then starts to increase again around 37 or 38, and it really increases at age 40. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that is a real, a real thing. Um, and I wish women tell me all the time, well, what can I take to increase, uh, improve my egg quality? And that means the, the, the DNA with each, within each one of those eggs. There is nothing that should be shown to improve egg quality, unfortunately. So um, those are kind of it's such a broad topic. Of the bit. That's kind of the baseline uh, info mm -hmm. for you guys. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I started what, what, what I do on social media is because of my own experiences. I delayed childbearing, obviously, and as an OBGYN, I was still kind of shocked that I couldn't have a baby of my own. Like, mm -hmm. I'm healthy. I had no medical conditions. I exercised every day, and all of my eggs were genetically abnormal. Uh, so if I was kind of taken aback by that, how would someone who wasn't an OBGYN or in the medicine, right. or how did they feel? So that's how I kind of started doing, you know, kind of my advocacy for women who are delivering or contemplating having babies later in life was because of my own personal experiences. Wow. I felt the same way. I, two of my babies were um, after 35. One was like 35 going on 36. And I just had one about 10 months ago. And I was categorized as geriatric. And I was like, what? I work out every day. I'm healthy. What are you talking about? You're aging me. Why are you calling me a geriatric pregnancy? But I mean... That makes a lot of sense. That definition that you just gave us, um, I've never heard of it that way. That's the reason why it starts at 35. I've always wondered that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about miscarriages because, um, you know, you mentioned um, your um, experiences earlier and I told you guys that I had a miscarriage. My first pregnancy was a miscarriage. And I remember how awful I felt and how inadequate I felt as a woman. And I felt like, um, again, I'm a healthy person. I was 29, 30 years old. All the women in my family, I've never heard of anyone ha having a miscarriage. They have kids. They had no issues. So why me? What's wrong with me? And every subsequent pregnancy after that, I never get comfortable in my mind or relax start to love or fall in love with the baby until around 32 weeks. Cause I feel like I'm safe. If something were to happen, they can save my baby. So my question for you is um, how common are miscarriages? Miscarriages are very common. Uh, and, and even, you know, you think about recognized miscarriages, meaning there was something seen on ultrasound and then miscarriage. And then there's also those, you know, that weren't ever, that were considered late periods where they're actually, um, pregnant, but they just didn't get further enough. Didn't realize it. So miscarriages mm -hmm. are very, very common. And, um, but it's not, doesn't make it, I hear all the time, you know, well, she, she, uh, miscarriage was early. So it's, she, she'll get over it. It's a loss. A loss is a loss, no matter when it occurred. Yeah. And I think a lot of women have trauma over that because mm -hmm. it is a loss. Mm -hmm. And when you feel like your support system or whoever's around you that's important to you is not viewing it that way as well. It's mm -hmm. even harder because then you don't have the support system. So uh, it, I wanted to say this also, no matter how common it is, it doesn't make it any easier. Especially no. if you're the one that it's happening to. 
Uh, right. you know, I'm never going to tell a woman that miscarried. Oh, it's common. I mean, mm -hmm. for her, it, you know, that was her, her, her pregnancy. So, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think the fact that it's common makes it any easier. It's still a loss. You know, it's crazy to me thinking about it. Um, and, and I don't know how much like ER doctors get experienced, um, or taught anything when it comes to maternal, um, health and pregnancies. Cause my second pregnancy, um, no, no, my third pregnancy, which is my second, um, full-term child. When I, we found out we were pregnant, I had like this abdominal pain that was out of this world. We went, we were out of town in DC, went to the emergency room. You know, I told him my history of a miscarriage and he did um, some ultrasounds and, you know, I was left in a room with my husband for a period of time. And then he came back, he was like, I'm sorry, you just go home and just let it happen is what he said. I was having a miscarriage. And I'm always saying I should go back to DC and show him my full born, nothing happened. Like by the time my, my full born, because by the time I got here to the, to my practice, you know, I went to the doctor and they were like, oh yeah, everything is viable. Um, you know, everything was going well, but his bedside manners were horrible and he made me feel absolutely horrible. Yeah. I hear stories about that all the time. You know, I Bedside manner, even if you don't have a lot of knowledge about obstetrics, you, you can still do something about bedside manner. So I would say that, but you know, there are ERs, a lot of ERs where they don't have obstetrical services. And so it is up to the ER doctor to make a call uh, regarding something like that, um, unfortunately. But I do think that for the most part, for most ERs that do have obstetrical services available, that, that they would be consulted, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is a terrible experience. And I, and I hear about that all the time. Um, and it's a long, long wait until you actually go to your doctor to find out that the baby is actually okay, whether it's 48 hours or a week that you had thinking that you were going to miscarry. I mean, that's awful. Um, and mm -hmm. I do, I, I sympathize with that. I, I, I get it and I hear it a lot. So, you know, we have certain guidelines that we use to kind of determine whether or not a pregnancy is at high suspicion for failure versus, you know, you need to bring it back in a, a week or so to redo another ultrasound or repeat the work. Um, but you know, sometimes that information is not delivered to the patient. So yeah, I've heard your story a lot. Yeah. So, so Dr. Shannon, you know, mm -hmm. just to switch gears a bit, you know, let's talk about, let's close with IVF. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I was watching, you did like a Instagram live with a IVF specialist. Mm -hmm. Um, so can you tell us like, what are some IVF and fertility challenges black women specifically face? Well, mm -hmm. so we'll talk about fertility. You know, I, I did this uh, talk with Dr. Kimmy Nuridine. She was a, a, a reproductive endocrinology and fertility specialist um, and very, very bright person. And I thought the talk was excellent with her. And I actually learned a lot myself. But, you know, I think we should start by first addressing the fact, and you guys can tell me um, since we're talking here, you know, I hear a lot about being infertile or having problems with fertility is not really discussed amongst black women or in the black community, is mm -hmm. that something you guys experienced yourselves? No, no, you, you, it's not spoken about at all. Um, it, I felt, I feel like, I don't know, Kim may have a different um, take on it, but I feel like it's, it has to do with the lack of education and understanding on what's causing infertility because in your mind, if you know, you're not able to conceive, you're infertile, you're broken. That's the con the misconception that is 
I think that is had um, in the black community. So no, it's not talked about often at all. Yeah. And I would think, you know, especially in the Caribbean community, um, I'm from Jamaica Mm -hmm. originally and Joanne's from Haiti. You're just Mm -hmm. expected to have a child within a certain time frame. You know, as soon as you hit that 18, 19, 20, 21. So, you know, the fact that, you know, like for me, I'm in my 30s and my mom is like, okay, Kim, okay, like it's time. So like, I really appreciate the fact that you're like, well, there's no quote unquote ideal or best time. So yeah, it's not really spoken about. Um, And yeah, it's kind of looked upon as taboo to be, to not have a child. Yeah. So, but I think that also that, uh, that mentality also kind of forces black women to delay seeking services um mm-hmm. services it also delays them getting treatment if they have mm-hmm. a treatable condition that can improve their fertility so by the time they actually do seek treatment it's either condition is very advanced and i'll talk we'll talk about fibroids fibroids is a common indication right. of fertility in black women Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not addressed earlier on by the time they do just either finally do decide or something has to be done. A lot of black women end up in hysterectomies, mm-hmm. which is going to mm-hmm. definitely decrease your chance of having a baby, you know, yourself. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, overall black women do have higher rates of infertility compared to, uh, their white counterparts. They also have lower success rates with IVF compared to Caucasian women. And even if you control for having an egg donor or other, um, uh, some of the confounding factors, they still have lower success rates with IVF. We don't really know mm-hmm. why. Um, but it's, there, it's, again, it's multifactorial. I think, um, you know, there's an overall increased prevalence. You're, they're seeking services less often and at later stages in their infertility journey. And then utilization of the resources in general, whether it be women's health care in general regarding, you know, their women's health. You know, it kind of all creates the perfect storm by the time they do realize that they want to get help because they're not able to conceive. So, um, you know, it, it is a real thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think that by women such as yourself who are willing to talk about it, it's going to help. And I have seen myself, uh, I don't do fertility and I, m- my patients are already pregnant, but just what I see on social media and women that are reaching out to me about, um, you know, having fertility issues and young women are even reaching out to me who are having issues of fertility or fibroids or abnormal bleeding because of whatever reason. And they're being encouraged to do something earlier on, which I think is great. Um, But the education still needs to be there so that they know that they can talk about it and that you guys can uh, put the word out there and help, you know, if something's not right and it doesn't mean you're trying to get pregnant. I mean, if your periods are not normal, if you're not feeling well, if you're feeling abdominal fullness, if you're, uh, you know, having other issues relating to your woman's health, we've got to, we got to seek care so that we can prevent things from happening or getting too far advanced. No, you are making perfect sense. Before you go into the IVF, I just wanted to add that oftentimes the barrier is the lack of quality health care. So oftentimes, um, you know, trust of the medical system in general. Right, right. So the lack of quality health care makes me where, who am I going to? Who can I afford? to go to, to find out what's causing this pain that I'm having or the symptoms that I'm experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. And that is definitely a factor as well. So, you know, uh, it's, the stats are not great, but again, the studies are starting to be done. The data is out there. 
and which is a start and especially regarding fertility and black women and or subfertility in black women and some of the more common causes. So, you know, again, like I said earlier, now is the time to try to do something to change things. Um, but it starts mm-hmm. with education and, uh, the way social media is, that's where a lot of people are getting their education. I think for, mm-hmm. for you feel the same way, uh, getting quality data and education out there is important. Um, because there can be a lot of bad stuff out there too. I I feel a duty myself um, to make sure I try to put out as much quality and accurate data as possible. So, you know, we just had to have more resources available. Can you go into a little bit on um, when should someone consider IVF or when, when is IVF considered the conversation between doctor and patient? Oh, so, you know, that's different for every woman. You know, there's a general rule of thumb. If you're under 35 and you go a year with actively trying to conceive and you haven't conceived, then see a, uh, an RAI specialist. And that's, but that's with the understanding that she's having normal menstrual cycles, mm-hmm. having a normal menstrual cycle every month indicates that she's likely ovulating. If you start at age 28 with already having abnormal menstrual cycles, then you don't want to wait a year. You got to figure out why you're not having a uh, normal menstrual cycles. I had a, a young female come to me the other day who's in medicine and said, um, I only have um, four periods a year. Uh, my doctor said, that's okay. She'll just give me a medication when I want to conceive. And I looked at her and I said, no, that's not, a, it's not okay. Okay. We're supposed to be having wow. cycles. So we have to, you know, at least start with normal menstrual cycles. And if you're not, you got to get seen earlier between age 35 and four, 37 or so 38, uh, you go for six months with normal menstrual cycles and no help or no pregnancy. And then after I say 38, it's really age 40 in the books, but age 38, you go three months with normal menstrual cycles, then you might want to see um, the fertility specialist. There are certain things that uh, fertility workup that uh, a general OBGYN can do. Um, mm-hmm. But if you have already have issues, you know, you might have fibroids, you may have had a pelvic inflammatory disease in the past that could be affecting your tubal, uh, the, you know, your tubes are working. If you, you know, have PCOS, if obesity is a factor, then you may want to, you know, start seeking help from a fertility specialist because those are additional factors that need to be considered. Um, and again, I, I talk to uh, REI docs all the time who do IVF, and I don't want women to think that just because they go see a specialist, they're going to be signed up for a fifteen thousand dollars cycle of IVF. Right. That's not their mm-hmm. goal is to push IVF on everybody. They talk a lot of times. All it takes is a consultation and, and a conversation to say you might want to change X, Y, and Z and to do it on your own. So mm-hmm. um, it's not, IVF is not the answer for everybody. Well, definitely Dr. Shannon, you know, we want to be conscientious of your time and, you know, all this information that you shared with us. So let our listeners yes. know where they can find you on TikTok and Instagram. <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, Babies Under 35 is my thing. I started back when I was going through fertility treatments uh, to try to get pregnant. So Babies After 35 on Instagram and in the link there is the link to all of my other social media things. Uh, and then I'm on the TikTok baby doc uh, on TikTok. So that's where you guys can find her babies after 35 on Instagram. Your videos are awesome. They're pretty funny at times um, and they're very educational. A little humor with the with education because I don't want to be too dry. Oh, it's it's <laughs> right, it's, it's right. very attractive. It is. It is. So guys, we had a really heart to heart conversation with Dr. Shannon today. And we want you guys to definitely go check her out yes. on all that information that she is pushing out on social media. As usual, remember to share this episode. 
give us a review. And also, don't forget to let your friends know about this episode. Thank you guys for listening. Have a good day. Yes. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.